All right, good morning, everyone. Before we begin with our Proverbs class, quick commercial. Our Foundations of Faith class has just begun last night from 5 to 6.30 with a nice little snack break and everything. We met for our first session. It's not too late to come. We have five more Saturdays through April 1st. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, But if you delay much further, it will be too late to come because we'll simply be too far along. The Foundations of Faith class is a catechetical class. That is, we re-examine the foundations of our faith, starting with the biblical scriptures and the story of scripture, the story of the family through whom the Messiah is born. And then we look at his foundational catechetical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, And from there, we're going to branch off into the the six chief parts of the catechism, those foundational parts of Scripture. So if you are looking for a refresher, if you're looking for a way to study, to possibly become a Lutheran Christian, a member of Faith Lutheran Church, this class is for you. If you're bored too, just come. (laughs) Saturday night, what else are you going to (laughs) do? Sit on social media? Boring. Yeah, come study God's Word. Okay, have some snacks. So, into Proverbs, at Proverbs chapter 10, which is where we left off, and we're going to jump back into this section that we just began. At Proverbs chapter 10, verse 6, we meditated to some extent on this verse, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So we'll run back over that very briefly and then get into the rest of the section having to do loosely with the theme of the mouth. We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 6, blessings are on the head of the righteous. We spend our time meditating on Christ, the righteous one, and the blessings upon his head. And we looked at how, though we might view those, at least from an earthly perspective, as positive or negative, as good or bad, the Holy Spirit being poured out on his head at baptism, at his baptism, being good in our eyes, the crown of thorns adorning his head being bad in our eyes. But both of these things being ultimately a matter of the Lord's blessing. So whether uh, what we would call blessing or curse in the hands of the Lord, they're one and the same and they're all blessings. So we spent some time talking about that and you could go back to our last class recording to get more on that. Now this is contrasted with the mouth of the wicked concealing violence. And you say, well, isn't that a good thing if it conceals violence? No, no. The violence is still there. The mouth is just 
used deceitfully to hide the violence that is there. So again, we can meditate on this in light of Christ. You can think directly, I think, of verse 6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous as Christ, but the mouth of the wicked or the wicked one, Satan, conceals violence. Boy, do we ever see that in the temptation of Jesus, which happens to be our gospel text today, don't we? How Satan is, here, let me help you out (laughs) all the way through. But of course, that help isn't help at all. He is with his mouth concealing the murderous rage and violence he intends. Okay, and as it goes for Christ, as it goes for Satan, these two different heads, so it is going to go for those who are under Christ or under Satan. So as we read this passage, we want to see ourselves as Christians under Christ. We want to see the blessings that are upon his head and receive them upon ours also. We want to see, on the other hand, the mouth of Satan and how it conceals violence. It's always pretending to be polite and loving and helpful, but underneath it's vile and murderous. We want to eschew that, avoid that, and not be like that. All right, then just continuing on at verse 7, the memory of the righteous is a blessing. Now, what's being stated here is to remember a righteous person is a blessing. So, if you, you know, you might think fondly of your earthly parents, particularly if you think fondly on the saints of God and the people who have aided you in your own faith. The memory of the righteous is a blessing. So, of course, you want to strive to be righteous so that when people remember you, it's a blessing to them. The contrast, the next line, but the name of the wicked will rot. We know that's true. There are certain people, even from history, that because of their wickedness, their name is almost a bad word. Their name is almost a curse, and it gets thrown around all the time in negative ways. Okay, so this is an observation about life and about the reputation, which is arguably the most valuable thing any of us has. But one's righteousness or one's wickedness affects one's reputation, not only in this life, but beyond your earthly life as others remember you or use your name. Make sense? Okay. Um, throw up a hand if you see something that I'm not addressing or if you have any question or concern, I'm happy to dialogue. It always makes for a more interesting class when we have that. But otherwise, I'll just carry right along. At verse 8, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. This is a great line, and there are many like it in the Proverbs. But, of course, it immediately strikes us, the wise of heart is, of course, who we want to be. It's who our Lord Jesus is. He receives the commandments of his Father. We should receive the commandments just the same. Um, Those who are wise of heart will receive instruction from one who is greater. Will we receive God's instruction? If so, we are wise of heart. If not, we're 
foolish. So while the wise of heart receive, what does the fool do? Babbles. The fool is constantly giving. Here's what I think. Blah, 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 you know. And the wise is receiving, listening. So James has a very similar thought when he says, be slow to speak, be quick to hear. More hearing, less talking. And in fact, those things seem to be mutually exclusive and continuous, such that if your ear isn't working, your mouth is. And if your mouth is working, then your ear isn't. We see how important this is in terms of receiving the wisdom of God. But we also see how important this is in terms of loving our neighbor. So to listen to our neighbor and make sure we thoroughly understand before we just launch off whatever advice or counsel we want to give. In fact, you can know you're in a really annoying conversation and a really fruitless conversation when everybody's just waiting for their turn to talk. Everybody says their piece, nobody interacts with it, except just to reestablish that it's now their turn to talk. A terrible conversation. Okay, so obviously then, what do we have to say about the mouth? The babbling fool will ultimately come to ruin. One who will not receive commandments but gives his own all of the time will come to ruin. All right, verse 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation a little bit. This is such a beautiful line. Haolek batom yalek bata. So it's this beautiful poetic piece of whoever walks in integrity walks securely. And that's contrasted with a comparatively ugly line. But he who makes his ways crooked, that is perverse or twisted or crafty, will be found out. So here the counsel of God's word is straightforward with the truth. We as Christians, especially in our day and age, need to be careful lest winsomeness simply become our own way of twisting things. We need to be blunt and straightforward with the truth of God to ourselves and to other people. Because the contrast of that is to make one's way perverse or twisted and to be dishonest or deceitful with the tongue. Such a person will eventually be found out. Okay? It's observation, but it's also kind of one of those laws that just exist because God has written it into creation. So you may as well walk in integrity and thus walk securely, not constantly make your ways perverse and twisted, you'll be found out. And of course, we know that colloquially, just in the sense that one lie begets another lie that begets another lie, and it all of a sudden becomes impossible to keep all of the lies juggled in the air, and eventually it all falls apart. 
Christ, of course, is our absolute example in terms of speaking straightforwardly, clearly. No perversity or twisting in his mouth. Verse 10, whoever winks the eye causes trouble. Now this continues the theme of duplicitousness or equivocation. So to speak as if you're speaking straightforward, but to wink the eye. Favorite game my kids like to play is they'll cross their fingers behind the back. You know? So, it's, I mean, it's just a fun game. They're not being evil or malicious about it, but it's like, hey, Dad, will you give me a piece of candy if I vacuum? You know. Yeah, sure. Here you go. Here's your candy. Okay, thanks, Dad. Hey, you said you were going to vacuum. What's up with that? How come you're not vacuuming? Oh, my fingers were crossed. You know? So... And then, of course, you know, you're checking fingers and inevitably there's a toe crossing the other and so on and so forth, right? That's the game. So this, though, really shows kind of, I mean, even though it's all playful and fun, what adults do that isn't playful and fun, and that is this winking of the eye, this duplicitousness, this innuendo, cloak and dagger type stuff. Uh, using words deceptively, that's all to be avoided. It does nothing but causes trouble. And no doubt you've got your own examples. So we have two negatives here. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. And don't think that, I mean, this is a poetic construction. I don't think that (laughs) Solomon's saying one is better than the other here. Rather, they're two sides of the same coin. So we've got this repetition of the babbling and the babbling fool coming to ruin. So duplicitousness and foolish undisciplined speech are both again to be avoided here. Okay, contrast that with verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. So where is the babbling fool? comes to ruin, perhaps leads others to ruin, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. And of course, you can think of Jesus himself saying as much of his own word, of his own person, that he gives waters that will quench our thirst, waters of which we will drink and never thirst again. And that water here would be understood as his word, as his teaching, which is life, quenches the soul. So we heard in the text today, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So a spiritual eating greater than the physical eating. And here we have a spiritual drinking greater than the physical drinking. So to eat and drink of the word of the Lord is true wisdom and true life. So the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. And then insofar as we receive that into ourselves, we have that to give. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And again, that's a repetition of the second half of verse 6. So you can see the way that um, Solomon is very conscientiously weaving these themes in a beautiful poetic tapestry for us to enjoy. So the concealing of violence, again, has to do with this duplicitous nature. The winking of the eye, the concealing of violence. 
Okay, and then verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Okay, there's a little bit of a word play with, if you're using the ESV, at verse 11, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence, yakasa, and then at the end of verse 12, but love takase all offenses, conceals all offenses. So the wicked, the mouth of the wicked conceals the violence he wants to do, but love conceals the offenses of others. And offenses here is pasha'im or sins. So the sins of others. So when, uh, when the scriptures say, um, love covers a multitude of sins, that's where that comes from. All right, but the immediate contrast is hatred, which then just keeps picking and nitpicking and dramatizing and over-dramatizing. I know you know nothing about this, but that's the way of, that's the, way of the hate-filled heart, and it stirs up strife, and then very frequently it laments that strife has befallen it and wants it over only to start the same process over again. So that's the way of hatred, which is the way of stirring up strife, versus love, which instead of stirring up strife, covers offenses. So, is it possible for you to take offense at something your neighbor has done? Always. That's a constant. That's a given. You wake up in the morning, and before you have even made your coffee, you have something to be irritated about. Where's my favorite coffee mug? Why is there only decaf left? When I open the fridge, I know I put the eggs right there. Why aren't the eggs right there? And so on. So the idea that you can take offense at something that someone has done is a constant reality. Now, hatred is going to grab a hold of that and make life miserable. Hatred, then, in this sense, is the source of hell and is constantly trying to make hell on earth. It's constantly stirring up strife. Love, on the other hand, sees the offenses, and even more deeply, sees the actual sins, not just you know, misplacing this out of the other thing, but actually sees the sins and forgives them, covers them, conceals them, makes them a non-issue so that they can't arise to the level of strife. You see the difference? So two different ways, way of love and stri- or way of hatred and strife, way of love and forgiveness. Two very different ways. All right, we continue with the theme um, loosely, loosely connected with the idea of the mouth. But let me pause and see if you have any thoughts. Everybody's okay? Well, I'll take advantage then. Keep going. Make some progress. Verse 13. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found. 
but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Okay, so if you're stupid, your stupidity is going to manifest in you getting punished. So you don't want to be stupid. And again, we're not talking about uh, earthly wisdom as such. We're talking about heavenly wisdom. So to receive that heavenly wisdom, and then to receive that, you'll actually have something to give on the lips of him who has understanding wisdom is found. That's a blessed state. But the one who lacks sense, the one who has no understanding, he doesn't have anything to give, no fruit of his lips, but rather he is fit only to receive a rod on his back. And then 14, before we have just this little break in the text, 14, the wise lay up or store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. So the one who lacks sense brings the rod upon his back, and the one who is a fool brings ruin near. And that's contrasted by the wise who store up knowledge and the wise who have understanding and thus can speak it from their storehouses. So, I mean, I don't know, very practical application. Maybe you've heard your, uh, maybe you've heard your parents say, or maybe you as a parent have said, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. Or 9 p.m. or 11 p.m. or whatever it is. I don't mean to quibble. But nothing good happens after that hour. And when you look at the stupid, terrible things that happen to people, it's typically because they put themselves in stupid and terrible positions. So social media will feed you different things, you know, the algorithms. So if you dare, you have to always ask yourself now, if I click on this, Am I prepared to see this genre of video for the next month straight? All right. But if you, if you click on something like, oh, here's a fight that took place at a bar. Let's see who wins. Okay. And you click on that. The algorithm's going to feed you all of this. And then you realize there's a much higher probability of getting in a fight if you're all someplace at one in the morning drinking too much. Imagine that. So I think, that, I think that this verse, I mean, what I, I'm way down in the weeds with a subset, but what this verse is talking about is the idea that lacking heavenly wisdom, being stupid, is going to bring a rod upon your back and ruin near. I think we all know that. It's just encouraging to hear that from our Father who is in heaven. And then to reflect, if you're young enough in this room, which some of you are, when your parents say, don't do this, and you say, hey, all my friends are doing it, say, yeah, but you're not a fool, and they are. And they're going to come to ruin, and if I have my choice, you're not. So please, please. Well, how do you know, Mom and Dad? Well, maybe I was a fool once. 
<laughs> and I learned to be wise. Why don't you learn from me instead of learn for yourself? Okay, I see a hand desperately waving back there. Yeah. I don't know if we're running a microphone or not. Um, I think the rod is kind of um, excessive, but the psychobabble of trying to reason with a two year old, you know, oh, you're going to get hurt if we run out to the street because cars can squish you and blah. A spanking works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they have to, re- they lack sense. They need to relate whatever is happening with something bad. And I think I've seen that so many times when I was teaching. Any child who has had too much, well, what do you feel about that, you know, when they're three years old? Oh, um, yeah. It just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It says it other, other places in Proverbs, but it's the same place. Yeah, yeah. He who spareth the rod loveth not the child. Well, yeah, it should. I mean, I don't know. What's popular is pretty much stupid, almost guaranteed. But what what is the wisdom of what is the wisdom of that of that passage that he who spareth the rod loveth not the child? The idea is that the deterrent you're giving is painful, but not as painful as the consequence of their actions. It's where it's actually an act of mercy. That's why it's why it's couched in the framework of love. Because, you know, so like, like take, a, take a, I don't know, six-year-old who's reaching up for the burner and you go, stop that. And of course, you know, they weep and crumple because you've just destroyed their whole world uh, by, you know, daring to afflict them with the tiniest amount of pain. But what you've actually chosen as a parent is the lesser pain than the greater pain. And you know that if you do nothing, they're going to have the greater pain. So that's why the scriptures say that you don't love them if you're going to allow them to suffer the greater pain, afflict them with the lesser pain so that they won't suffer the greater pain. That's incumbent upon you. It is a strange act of mercy, but an act of mercy nonetheless. And of course, you know, parents these days just want to be their best friends with their kids. or you know, it's, it's, Let's just say it's dysfunctional. Uh, the Bible has a lot of wisdom there, and, and that's part of it, right? So, yeah, you want to bring your child, you want to, you know, even if not the rod, or to ruin, you want to deter them from that behavior before they incur the rod, or before they bring upon themselves ruin. You know, that's the idea. Okay, I saw a hand or something. Yes, please. It's also the divine rod. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, as a uh, theology teacher, I would tell my students, you know, there's a divine spanking that comes from God. So if you don't adhere to or listen to the words that are being spoken to you or the counsel that's being given to you, then God may have to kick it up a notch. And there's called this divine spanking that comes from God because God disciplines those whom he loves. Exactly. And so there we get back to what you were saying with that other Bible passage. Yeah, God, God is going to do that. Um, in verses, sometimes he, he, pleads with us, he pleads with us just to, pleads with us is the word I'm looking for, just so that we'll listen to him and not have to incur any discipline. Um, but then, yeah, he does indeed discipline those whom he loves. And it's even in a sense, I mean, at its absolute sense, it's, wild because um, 
the language there, he chastises the one whom he loves. If you go to chastise, it's the unique word for scourging. And it's that scourging which our Lord himself endured. Now, our Lord himself isn't learning any lesson there. He's bearing it for our sakes. But that word is chosen by the author of Hebrews, I think it is, specifically so that we would see that even that kind of extreme punishment ultimately does nothing but conforms us into the image of Christ. And of course, you have St. Peter saying, look, if you're punished for doing evil, you're not some great martyr. <laughs> you know, that's called justice. But if you're punished for doing what is right, that is, and you get this really awkward English translation, a gracious thing in the sight of God. I think, I think to translate dynamically the sense of that, it would be that is something of priceless worth to God. When a human being does what is right, suffers the punishment for it, and does so without complaint, and just going, yep, that's exactly how it should be. God be praised. Okay. Uh, much like the apostles who are arrested for preaching Christ or who are beaten for preaching Christ, but keep on doing it, and as soon as they're out of jail or as soon as they've recovered enough, they worship and give thanks and praise to God. That's something so exceedingly rare in the world that to God, that's like a diamond or like gold. He cares nothing about created diamonds or gold, but that, that character in his saints is extremely rare and extremely precious in his sight. Thank you for that comment. Okay, I'm seeing a couple other hands come up. Over here first, please. He said that another element in all of this is the long-range repair or the long-range learning. There is something about when conceding to the rules quickly, Mm -hmm. you have you have a, and maybe this is already implied and maybe it's already <coughs> spoken, I don't know. But I saw this over and over in the classroom when there's a quick learning of what is, um, of, of marvelous uh, repair to your behavior. Life is, it, it, you, you live it with, a, with an ease that is, your advantage. Yeah, yeah. To follow, to know the lines, to follow the lines is to your advantage and to the advantage of everyone else around you. And yeah, that's another effect of this that look, I mean, we're so egotistical. It's like, okay, well, how does this benefit me? Or how is this all about me? Well, in these ways, but also you conducting yourself in the way of wisdom is going to be good for others. Yes, please. I saw another hand over here. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of uh, the connection between disciple I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I'd have to look into that. I don't, I, I'm doubtful of it biblically. Like, I'm doubtful of it from the Greek. But if you, I don't know. I mean, I think your point's still right, even if the etymology might be questionable, that to be a disciple of Christ is to be under his discipline, so to speak. Yeah, sure. Was that, was that the essence of the point? You're looking up the etymology oh, right I'm, now? I'm, I'm just looking in, you know, Wikipedia what it, for what it's worth, but it, 
Someone wrote, a discipleship means discipline. The disciple is that one who has been taught or trained by the master, and so forth. And then there's something about discipline and discipleship by C.S. Lewis, whatever. Yeah, the question is, what's the etymology of all that? I don't know. I mean, English botches stuff all the time. So I'm, I'm dubious, maybe, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm, dub- I'm doubtful. Okay, so just jumping back into the text then, uh, with verses 15 through 17, we have kind of an interlude. We're not, the, there's a thematic break, and you'll see this right away where suddenly wealth is brought in. And we largely kind of go away from the idea of the mouth and any other themes familiar. So again, I think there's like a little, if this were music, this would be a little interlude stuck in these three verses, 15 through 17. The first is a kind of observation. And we're going to see more and more of these. So a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Now, the point here isn't that this is prescriptive. It's not saying this is the way it should be. It's not even saying, like, it's not making a judgment. Is this good or bad? It is simply making an observation. And that observation, as a general truth, is what is to set you out upon your meditation. So, I mean, very, just like very quickly. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. In what, way, in what ways are that true? Is that true? Well, you got your six months of salary saved up. That's a pretty good fortress around you, right? If you lose your job, you're not going to be under a bridge. You're okay. Um, any foreseeable issues, you should be all right. So it's your, it's your strong city. It's your fortress. It makes sense. It's why everybody tries, tries to keep a little savings, even though I think last I heard, like 64% of Americans are just living paycheck to paycheck. So it's kind of bleak. And then the poverty of the poor is their ruin. And that manifests itself in all kinds of ways. By and large, who buys lottery tickets? The poor. And you have an absolutely minuscule chance of, I don't know, as one of my undergrad professors put it very rudely, the, uh, the lottery system is a tax on those who don't understand mathematics. But the idea is that being poor manifests itself in behaviors that keep you poor. That's an idea that's worth meditating on, okay? Now, I know this can sound like judgmental and harsh, but that's all part of the meditation. And we could meditate a little more deeply and say, okay, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. So then he serves and is served by mammon. Is, has wealth ever failed anyone? How about everyone? How about everyone at the end of their life that would, you know, hey, I'd, I'd pay anything I could, I could for a treatment, and the doctors are like, yeah, there's no treatment. Well, what good is your wealth? What good is this fortress or strong city around you? Plus, you know, a mighty fortress is my wallet, just doesn't have the <laughs> same ring to it. 
And the poverty of the poor is their ruin. Is that, think, think of Jesus. Now, sometimes Jesus gets caricatured as if he were some, like, smelly homeless guy, you know, under the bridge, or some guy that smells too much like hemp walking around in Birkenstocks, and neither of those are true. Jesus has funding. He has a home. He's not homeless. And yet he describes himself as not being at home here in the world and having no place, in fact, to lay his head in the deeper sense of that. And so this kind of poverty, which is really a detachment from things, is in fact wisdom and a greater protection to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, trusting that all this other stuff will be added to you. Okay, so we get all that from just an observation. And that's how to read the Proverbs. Many of the Proverbs we're going to encounter are just that, like a statement of fact. And what the Lord wants you to do is toss that idea around. Interpret the scriptural observation in light of the scriptures and see what wisdom you find therein. Does that make sense? So we start with this observation, and then we're led from that into something a little more tangible and concrete, a little less nebulous. At verse 16, the wage, the paycheck of the righteous leads to life. What does that mean? The gain of the wicked to sin. So the righteous receive a paycheck and use that to further them on their way to life and in the way of life. The wicked use their gain, and notice it may not be a wage, but they use their gain, ill-gotten or not, to further their sin. So viewed from this angle then, the angle of this proverb, money is always a servant. It's just going to be a servant unto righteousness and life or a servant unto sin and death. Uh, We might reflect on this with another passage that it's not money that is the root of all evil, but what? The love of money. So we might reflect on that, that money is, and how one uses money is simply reflective of one's soul. Ouch, that hurts. If you don't have anything to confess, if you're feeling like, you know, yeah, I might have sinned once this last week, I'm doing pretty great. Uh, then you can look at the way you spend your money and find out real fast who your gods are. That is a painful Mirror. Okay, so money then is used by the righteous in service of life and by the wicked in service of sin. And then, again, we kind of transition in verse 17 back into the text with whoever heeds. Now that's listens to with the ear. Whoever heeds, obeys as part of that instruction is on the path of life. But he who rejects reproof or correction leads others astray. 
And so again, we've just kind of got this transition with these similar themes that having an ear is better than having a mouth. I think it's it was put this way, like God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> yeah, so learn from, learn from that. Uh, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. And again, you, you recognize here, I mean, not to be too formal about it, that life is a gift given to us by God through his word. I mean, that's certainly at the root of this. But he who rejects that word, he who rejects reproof or correction, uh, correction it doesn't just um, befall him, but he also is going to lead others astray. And so then there is also that corporate sense that we're uncomfortable with as as Americans, because we see every, everyone as individuals, when in fact we're much more interconnected and our families are in fact the unit of humanity, not the individual, then the interconnection of those families is inescapable. And part of the reason of avoiding sin is because your sin is going to affect you and you go, well, I'll take that, fine, that's a trade. But you being affected is going to affect those around you, and those around you being affected are going to affect everyone else, all of society, and no, you can't stop that. So that's part and parcel of learning to resist sin, is you go, well, the consequence can fall upon me, I'll bear it. Yeah, but did you consider that that's going to have an effect all the way down the line? And it will. It's not stoppable. You get a bad conscience because you've gone against your conscience. That bad conscience is going to result in all kinds of short-temperedness, bad mood, lack of wisdom, unclean heart. You don't think that's going to manifest itself behaviorally? It absolutely is. And then you don't think that's going to affect the people around you? It absolutely is. So, again, this is the wisdom of conducting oneself watchfully and trying to heed that instruction on the path of life, which then will benefit those around you, as opposed to rejecting the reproof and thus leading others astray, whether you intend to or not. Okay, and that verse 17 transitions us out of the interlude and back into the theme, which again is, um, if you look at verse 6 through 23, that's kind of the unit, which loosely around the mouth and the ear, righteousness and wickedness. So at 18, we're kind of back into the main theme, the one who conceals hatred. So we've seen conceals violence, concealed conceals hatred. Again, the violence and the hatred are the problem in and of itself, but the mouth is trying to hide this and thus just add sin upon sin. So the heart, if we, if we look at hatred, we go back to verse 12. Hatred stirs up, uh, stirs up strife. And so the one who conceals hatred has a heart that seeks after strife, but conceals it with his lips and thus has lying or deceitful lips. And whoever utters slander is a fool. So again, hatred stirring up strife is connected with then slander. And usually the way we slander someone now, I think in the household, like, you know, the guard gets let down and we just speak freely and just openly slander. 
But if you're out in polite company, so like this is this is often the example um, <laughs> that's familiar to us as pastors. So, your ecclesiastical supervisor, um, if a congregation is interested in calling a pastor, maybe they're interested in calling you as their pastor, so they go to the ecclesiastical supervisor and they say, is this guy a good fit or not? All the ecclesiastical supervisor has to do, if he doesn't like you, is go, well, I think he'd be very good, but maybe not the best fit. I don't know. Okay, so what's going on? In his heart, he hates you, but he's not going to disclose that with lying lips. He's going to slander with lips that conceal the hatred and the violence, uh, but he's still going to get his point across. And I think the wisdom of this is even when we try to be absolute, you know, you don't have to say the words with just the expression on your face with just the way you hold your eyes or your mouth. You can communicate all that needs to be communicated that that person is low and nothing, okay? So what is the point then of the proverb? God sees that. God isn't deceived. God doesn't go, oh, well, they did it in a polite way. In fact, God's insulted that the heart is positioned this way, and there's this attempt to make that hate-filled, violent heart pious by hiding it behind lying lips or a winking eye or other forms of pious deceit. Okay, so now we see how deeply this accuses all of us. And the gloves come off with that final line here, Whoever utters slander is a fool. Why are you a fool? Well, in the first place, because God sees. In the second place, guess what slandering ultimately does? Everybody figures this out. If this person... See, slander is a form of currency up front, and it's a form of forming a relationship up front. Because you say, you entrust yourself to someone by saying... Let me tell you this about this other person. It's a form of currency that you've bartered, and they receive that, and thus now you have a relationship, you have a bond built, but it's built on a phony currency. Because it doesn't take long for that person to go, if he or she was willing to slander that person to me, guess what else they're willing to do? Slander me to someone Else, So that's the ultimate foolishness of slander because it always inevitably falls back on your head. And I know that that's like, we're talking eighth commandment here, so we're talking like it's, (laughs) I mean, it is part and parcel of our fallen nature to slander, but it is part and parcel of our new man to drown that slanderous man and to bite the tongue or do whatever else we need to do and then to not be led astray by this idea. So also, sorry, sorry, I have to say this. I know this is going to be real painful. Guess what slander often goes by in our culture? You guys are thinking too deeply. 
venting. Venting. Oh, I'm just venting. If I don't vent about this, it's unhealthy. I don't want to have it all bottled in. I'm just going to vent for a minute. Okay? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just venting. Meanwhile, you've filled the whole room and all the ears around with vitriol and poison, and you've couched it in the moralistic, therapeutic, deistic elements of our culture of, oh, no, 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 I'm just healing my own heart, just letting the pressure cook or just letting off some steam, just, you know, this is good, this is healthy, or, you know, maybe it's not ideal, but it's better than bottling it up and keeping it in. So the middle ground of piety. No. No. So what would be the alternative to venting? (laughs) Praying! Exactly! Because that's going to straighten it out right away, isn't it? That's going to immediately like, bring you to attention and bring your soul to right orientation. I'm going to talk to God about this, not my husband or wife or children or family members or friends or coworkers. I'm not going to vent to them. I'm going to vent to God. And right away that changes things, doesn't it? But how so? Really only in our minds. Because God sees both. <laughs> thus revealing the foolishness of slander. Okay, that's probably enough for today. We'll look to close this section on the mouth out next week. And then if you want to look ahead very quickly, verses 24 through 32 are going to be more contrast between the righteous and the wicked. But this is going to have some really interesting imagery and some good things for us to ponder. Now, the way of wisdom is not just the way of getting things right. It's the first part. The way of wisdom is where you've got things wrong. Confess and receive that forgiveness. One for you by the one who is wisdom incarnate. If we say we have no sin, we're only deceiving ourselves. But if we confess our sins, we know he is faithful and just to not only forgive our sins, but also to cleanse us, make us clean from all our unrighteousness. There's the heart of all wisdom. The Lord be with you. Awesome.